Section 37 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1F, Section 37, Chapter 70, Part 2. A little before the meeting of Parliament, Oates had been tried for perjury on two indictments, one for deposing that he was present at a consult of Jesuits in London the 24th of April, 1679, another for deposing that father ireland was in london between the eighth and twelfth of august and in the beginning of september in the same year never criminal was convicted on fuller and more undoubted evidence two and twenty persons who had been students at st omer's most of them men of credit and family gave evidence that oates had entered into that seminary about christmas in the year sixteen seventy eight and had never been absent but one night till the month of july following forty-seven witnesses persons also of untainted character deposed that father ireland on the third of august sixteen seventy nine had gone to staffordshire where he resided till the middle of september and what some years before would have been regarded as a very material circumstance nine of these witnesses were protestants of the church of england Oates's sentence was to be fined a thousand marks on each indictment, to be whipped on two different days from Allgate to Newgate and from Newgate to Tyburn, to be imprisoned during life, and to be pilloried five times every year. The impudence of the man supported itself under the conviction, and his courage under the punishment. He made solemn appeals to heaven and protestations of the veracity of his testimony though the whipping was so cruel that it was evidently the intention of the court to put him to death by that punishment he was enabled by the care of his friends to recover and he lived to king william's reign when a pension of four hundred pounds a year was settled on him a considerable number still adhered to him in his distresses and regarded him as the martyr of the protestant cause the populace were affected with the sight of a punishment more severe than is commonly inflicted in england and the sentence of perpetual imprisonment was deemed illegal the conviction of oates's perjury was taken notice of by the house of peers besides freeing the popish lords powis arundel bellasis and tyrone together with danby from the former impeachment by the commons they went so far as to vote a reversal of stafford's attainder on account of the falsehood of that evidence on which he had been condemned this bill fixed so deep a reproach on the former proceedings of the exclusionist that it met with great opposition among the lords and it was at last after one reading dropped by the commons though the reparation of injustice be the second honor which a nation can attain the present emergence seemed very improper for granting so full a justification to the catholics and throwing so foul a stain on the protestants the course of parliamentary proceedings was interrupted by the news of monmouth's arrival in the west with three ships from holland no sooner was this intelligence conveyed to the parliament 
than they voted that they would adhere to his majesty with their lives and fortunes they passed a bill of attainder against monmouth and they granted a supply of four hundred thousand pounds for suppressing his rebellion having thus strengthened the hands of the king they adjourned themselves monmouth when ordered to depart the kingdom during the late reign had retired to holland and as it was well known that he still enjoyed the favor of his indulgent father all marks of honor and distinction were bestowed upon him by the prince of orange after the accession of james the prince thought it necessary to dismiss monmouth and all his followers and that illustrious fugitive retired to brussels finding himself still pursued by the king's severity he was pushed contrary to his judgment as well as inclination to make a rash and premature attempt upon england he saw that james had lately mounted the throne not only without opposition but seemingly with the good will and affection of his subjects a parliament was sitting which discovered the greatest disposition to comply with the king and whose adherents he knew would give a sanction and authority to all public measures the grievances of this reign were hitherto of small importance and the people were not as yet in a disposition to remark them with great severity all these considerations occurred to monmouth but such was the impatience of his followers and such the precipitate humor of argyle who set out for scotland a little before him that no reasons could be attended to and this unhappy man was driven upon his fate the imprudence however of this enterprise did not at first appear though on his landing at lyme in dorsetshire he had scarcely a hundred followers so popular was his name that in four days he had assembled above two thousand horse and foot they were indeed almost all of them the lowest of the people and the declaration which he published was chiefly calculated to suit the prejudices of the vulgar or the most bigoted of the whig party he called the king duke of york and denominated him a traitor a tyrant an assassin and a popish usurper he imputed to him the fire of london the murder of godfrey and of essex nay the poisoning of the late king and he invited all the people to join in opposition to his tyranny the duke of albemarle son to him who had restored the royal family assembled the militia of devonshire to the number of four thousand men and took post at axminster in order to oppose the rebels but observing that his troops bore a great affection to monmouth he thought proper to retire monmouth though he had formerly given many proofs of personal courage had not the vigor of mind requisite for an undertaking of this nature from an ill-grounded diffidence of his men he neglected to attack albemarle an easy enterprise by which he might both have acquired credit and have supplied himself with arms lord grey who commanded his horse discovered himself to be a notorious coward yet such was the softness of monmouth's nature that grey was still continued in his command fletcher of salton a scotchman a man of signal probity and fine genius had been engaged by his republican principles in this enterprise and commanded the cavalry together with grey but being insulted by one who had newly joined the army and whose horse he had in a hurry made use of he was prompted by passion to which he was much subject to discharge a pistol at the man and he killed him on the spot 
this incident obliged him immediately to leave the camp and the loss of so gallant an officer was a great prejudice to monmouth's enterprise the next station of the rebels was taunton a disaffected town which gladly and even fondly received them and reinforced them with considerable numbers twenty young maids of some rank presented monmouth with a pair of colors of their handiwork together with a copy of the bible monmouth was here persuaded to take upon him the title of king and assert the legitimacy of his birth a claim which he advanced in his first declaration but whose discussion he was determined he then said during some time to postpone his numbers had now increased to six thousand and he was obliged every day for want of arms to dismiss a great many who crowded to his standard he entered bridgewater wells from and was proclaimed in all these places but forgetting that such desperate enterprises can only be rendered successful by the most adventurous courage he allowed the expectations of the people to languish without attempting any considerable undertaking while monmouth by his imprudent and misplaced caution was thus wasting time in the west the king employed himself in making preparations to oppose him six regiments of british troops were called over from holland the army was considerably augmented and regular forces to the number of three thousand men were dispatched under the command of feversham and churchill in order to check the progress of the rebels monmouth observing that no considerable men joined him finding that an insurrection which was projected in the city had not taken place and hearing that argyle his confederate was already defeated and taken sunk into such despondency that he had once resolved to withdraw himself and leave his unhappy followers to their fate his followers expressed more courage than their leader and seemed determined to adhere to him in every fortune the negligent disposition made by feversham invited monmouth to attack the king's army at sedgemoor near bridgewater and his men in this action showed what a native courage and a principle of duty even when unassisted by discipline is able to perform they threw the veteran forces into disorder drove them from their ground continued to fight till their ammunition failed them and would at last have obtained a victory had not the misconduct of monmouth and the cowardice of gray prevented it after a combat of three hours the rebels gave way and were followed with great slaughter about fifteen hundred fell in the battle and pursuit and thus was concluded in a few weeks this enterprise rashly undertaken and feebly conducted monmouth fled from the field of battle above twenty miles till his horse sunk under him he then changed clothes with a peasant in order to conceal himself the peasant was discovered by the pursuers who now redoubled the diligence of their search at last the unhappy monmouth was found lying in the bottom of a ditch and covered with fern his body depressed with fatigue and hunger his mind by the memory of past misfortunes by the prospect of future disasters human nature is unequal to such calamitous situations much more the temper of a man softened by early prosperity and accustomed to value himself solely on military bravery he burst into tears when seized by his enemies and he seemed still to indulge the fond hope and desire of life 
though he might have known, from the greatness of his own offences and the severity of James's temper, that no mercy could be expected, he wrote him the most submissive letters, and conjured him to spare the issue of a brother who had ever been so strongly attached to his interest. James, finding such symptoms of depression and despondency in the unhappy prisoner, admitted him to his presence, in hopes of extorting a discovery of his accomplices. But Monmouth would not purchase life, however loved, at the price of so much infamy. Finding all efforts vain, he assumed courage from despair, and prepared himself for death with a spirit better suited to his rank and character. This favorite of the people was attended to the scaffold with a plentiful effusion of tears. He warned the executioner not to fall into the error which he had committed in beheading Russell, where it had been necessary to repeat the blow. This precaution served only to dismay the executioner. He struck a feeble blow on Monmouth, who raised his head from the block and looked him in the face, as if reproaching him for his failure. He gently laid down his head a second time, and the executioner struck him again and again to no purpose. He then threw aside the axe and cried out that he was incapable of finishing the bloody office. The sheriff obliged him to renew the attempt, and at two blows more the head was severed from the body. Thus perished in the thirty-sixth year of his age a nobleman who, in less turbulent times, was well qualified to be an ornament of the court, even to be serviceable to his country. The favor of his prince, the caresses of faction, and the allurements of popularity, seduced him into enterprises which exceeded his capacity. The good will of the people still followed him in every fortune. Even after his execution, their fond credulity flattered them with hopes of seeing him once more at their head. They believed that the person executed was not Monmouth, but one who, having the fortune to resemble him nearly, was willing to give this proof of his extreme attachment, and to suffer death in his stead. This victory, obtained by the king in the commencement of his reign, would naturally, had it been managed with prudence, have tended much to increase his power and authority. But by reason of the cruelty with which it was prosecuted, and of the temerity with which it afterwards inspired him, it was a principal cause of his sudden ruin and downfall. Such arbitrary principles had the court instilled into all its servants, that Feversham, immediately after the victory, hanged above twenty prisoners, and was proceeding in his executions when the Bishop of Bath and Wells warned him that these unhappy men were now by law entitled to a trial, and that their execution would be deemed a real murder. This remonstrance, however, did not stop the savage nature of Colonel Kirk, a soldier of fortune who had long served at Tangiers, and had contracted from his intercourse with the Moors an inhumanity less known in European and in free countries. At his first entry into Bridgewater, he hanged nineteen prisoners without the least inquiry into the merits of their cause. As if to make sport with death, he ordered a certain number to be executed while he and his company should drink the king's health, or the queen's, or that of Chief Justice Jefferies. Observing their feet to quiver in the agonies of death, he cried that he would give them music to their dancing, and he immediately commanded the drums to beat and the trumpets to sound. 
By way of experiment, he ordered one man to be hung up three times, questioning him at each interval whether he repented of his crime, but the man obstinately asserting that, notwithstanding the past, he still would willingly engage in the same cause. Kirk ordered him to be hung in chains. One story commonly told of him is memorable for the treachery as well as barbarity which attended it. A young maid pleaded for the life of her brother and flung herself at Kirk's feet, armed with all the charms which beauty and innocence, bathed in tears, could bestow upon her. The tyrant was inflamed with desire, not softened into love or clemency. He promised to grant her request, provided that she, in her turn, would be equally compliant to him. The maid yielded to the conditions, but after she had passed the night with him, the wanton savage next morning showed her from the window her brother, the darling object for whom she had sacrificed her virtue, hanging on a gibbet, which he had secretly ordered to be there erected for the execution. Rage and despair and indignation took possession of her mind, and deprived her for ever of her senses. All the inhabitants of that country, innocent as well as guilty, were exposed to the ravages of this barbarian. The soldiery were let loose to live at free quarters, and his own regiment, instructed by his example and encouraged by his exhortations, distinguished themselves in a particular manner by their outrages. By way of pleasantry, he used to call them his lambs, an appellation which was long remembered with horror in the west of England. The violent Jefferies succeeded after some interval, and showed the people that the rigors of law might equal, if not exceed, the ravages of military tyranny. This man, who wantoned in cruelty, had already given a specimen of his character in many trials where he presided, and he now set out with a savage joy as to a full harvest of death and destruction. He began at Dorchester, and thirty rebels being arraigned, he exhorted them, but in vain, to save him, by their free confession, the trouble of trying them. And when twenty-nine were found guilty, he ordered them, as an additional punishment of their disobedience, to be led to immediate execution. Most of the other prisoners, terrified with this example, pleaded guilty, and no less than two hundred and ninety-two received sentence at Dorchester. Of these, eighty were executed. Exeter was the next stage of his cruelty. Two hundred and forty-three were there tried, of whom a great number were condemned and executed. He also opened his commission at Taunton and Wells, and everywhere carried consternation along with him. The juries were so struck with his menaces that they gave their verdict with precipitation, and many innocent persons, it is said, were involved with the guilty. And on the whole, besides those who were butchered by the military commanders, two hundred and fifty-one are computed to have fallen by the hand of justice. The whole country was strewed with the heads and limbs of traitors. Every village almost beheld the dead carcass of a wretched inhabitant, and all the rigors of justice, unabated by any appearance of clemency, were fully displayed to the people by the inhuman Jefferies. Of all the executions during this dismal period, the most remarkable were those of Mrs. Gaunt and Lady Lyle, who had been accused of harboring traitors. 
Mrs. Gaunt was an Anabaptist, noted for her beneficence, which she extended to persons of all profession and persuasions. One of the rebels, knowing her humane disposition, had recourse to her in his distress, and was concealed by her. Hearing of the proclamation, which offered an indemnity and rewards to such as discovered criminals, he betrayed his benefactress, and bore evidence against her. He received a pardon as a recompense for his treachery. She was burned alive for her charity. End of section 37, chapter 70, part 2. Recording by Jim Dennison. J-I-M-D-E-N-I-S-O-N. Voice.com.